Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 113, Home Soil. Ugly bags of mostly water. We welcome you to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we drill down through the top layer of soil to see what is seething just under the surface of Star Trek. And uh, Ken, well done. The transition from computer translator voice I to know. Ken Ray voice. Really well done. No, you probably thought it was one of the uh, home soil aliens uh, doing that. Home soil, by the way, is, yeah. the, uh, is the show that we're doing this week. And with a title like that, you know that the alien life form is going to win because... I don't care how good your team is. Home soil advantage is very hard to overcome. <laughs> it's it's very difficult. So yeah, you know, I thought I, I thought about doing the whole show that way, and then realized after thirty seconds, I wanted to kill myself doing it. So I figured, <laughs> why, you know? Although it might put podcasting back on the map. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's driving themselves off a cliff because I did this dumb computer voice all the way through. So I think I, I think I chose well. I, I thought that uh, the, the way you announced that the the home soil aliens, I thought it sounded like a new sponsor for the show. You sound bad, like, you yeah. know, home soil brought to you by the home soil aliens. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. more like a sports team to me, though. The home soil aliens versus the I don't know the Rigel Seven, right? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. Something along those lines. Hey, uh, I. I have nothing clever to say to get us into trivia, so let's just jump into trivia. John? Right on. Well, I've got, I've got quick trivia for you today, because I want to get right to the story. Uh, Home Soil was written by the combined talents of Carl Gers, Ralph Sanchez, and Robert Sabaroff. Uh, the first two probably don't sound familiar, since this was their only Trek writing credit, but Robert Sabaroff wrote the TOS episode, The Immunity Syndrome. How cool is that? And uh, we also have to say welcome back to Corey Allen, who directed Encounter at Farpoint. So, Ken, as you mentioned, the ugly bags of mostly water, uh, a phrase that we have heard in and around Star Trek and the sci-fi fandom for a number of years. Um, I, I didn't realize that it originated with this episode. And uh, it is also the title of a documentary called Earthlings, Ugly Bags of Mostly Water. It came out in 2004 and is actually about specifically Klingon fans, hmm. not not. Klingons who are fans, but people who are fans of Klingons and centers around the Klingon Language Institute. And of course, we've kind of referenced that the whole idea that Klingon as a language, which we just got a snippet of in Star Trek, the motion picture, then became its own very complex language. And uh, Michael Dorn appears in that documentary. Can I, let me ask a question really quickly. When you say you didn't realize that it originated in this episode, did you mean this episode specifically? I mean, you remembered it was TNG, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I knew it was from TNG, but I, I, it was kind of a surprise to me. Like, oh, look, that's where it comes about. Yeah, like act four, right? Act four of this episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. and I think maybe I didn't realize that because I had so, you know, for so long recently 
kind of combined that phrase in my head with Klingons. <laughs> you know, oh, maybe gotcha. from the documentary. But yeah, here, here is the, the origin of that phrase. No, it totally surprised me when it came up in this episode because in my head it was such a memorable line mm-hmm. that it mm-hmm. happens all the way through the episode. And so when mm-hmm. we're all the way up to Act 4 before they say it and then he pops out with that line, I was like, oh, oh, that's here. Okay. Right, right. Because I really thought we would have been hearing that much. All right. As you mm-hmm. were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I want to point out two of the guest stars in today's episode. Um, Elizabeth Lindsay played Louisa Kim. Now, she was a Miss Hawaii in 1978. Not a Miss Hawaii. She was the Miss Hawaii in 1978. <laughs> as if they were just hundreds. Just that's lousy how, with that's Miss Hawaii. Well, you know. She appeared in a handful of TV shows. I, I found it very interesting that one of her first TV appearances was on Fantasy Island. Of course, a big Star Trek crossover there with Ricardo Montalban. And then one of her last TV appearances was on the remake of Fantasy Island from the late 1990s. Uh, Another uh, Star Trek crossover yet to be with Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, such a shame that that show didn't last. And I'm not kidding. No, I I love the concept of that show. I wish it had stuck around. It was crazy. It was was Barry Sonnefeld, I think, that was Mm, uh, was behind it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just it had um yeah it had something that probably left most of America going, huh? So right. yeah, yeah. Stay tuned for our Fantasy Island podcast coming to you <laughs> coming. in 2045. Right. Uh, but finally, the uh, the guest star that I want to talk about is Walter Gotel as Mandel. Wow, wow, wow. I, I just for me to get excited about a guest star. Here we go. He played General Gogol. In six James Bond movies, starting with The Spy Who Loved Me in 1979, I'm sorry, 77, and ending with The Living Daylights in 1987. Um, He even appeared as a henchman in From Russia With Love. Um, He was German, not Russian. (laughs) So even though you think of him as General Gogol, he was actually German. And uh, of course, he has had a long and varied career. Um, But I was very excited to to see and recognize him because uh, being the big James Bond fan that I am, I was very excited by that bit of crossover. In a game between the home soil aliens and the crew of the next generation, what passes for my money would be on the Enterprise. They bring a really strong D. Prologue. The Enterprise stops by the planet Valara 3 to check on the progress of terraforming by a team of Federation scientists. When Picard calls down to the director of the team, Kurt Mandel, he doesn't exactly get the reception he expects. Here's the whole thing in a nutshell. Picard. Hello, Kurt. We just stopped by to say hello. Mandel. Uh, we don't want any. Picard. Really? It's just a friendly call. We want to see how you're doing. Maybe chat over a meal. Mandel. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. Go away. Picard. Great. We're beaming down. Then Deanna Troy pipes up with what should be obvious to anyone, even if they have never heard of emotions. Mandel is hiding something. Act one. When the away team arrives at the lab on Valara 3, they get a much warmer greeting. Riker, Yar, Data, and LaForge are greeted by Louisa Kim, who then introduces them to Arthur Mallinson, a hydraulic specialist, and Bjorn Benson. Engineering is the name of the game for him. 
Bjorn is fascinated by data and realizes he's not one of us. Louisa Kim walks the away team through the basics of terraforming. Her group chooses a suitable planet, then starts by processing or adding water and ultimately microorganisms. Over time, the dead, lifeless planet will be Class M and support life. The important part is that the planet they choose must be lifeless. Come on, didn't anyone see the wrath of Khan? This planet has a shallow band of very salty water just below the surface and will be perfect for their needs. Just then, the director, Mandel, stops in, apologetic for the rude communication a few minutes ago. He's still not one for a friendly banter. He's a busy man with a schedule to keep. He orders Malinson into the hydraulic chamber to get back to work. Just a moment later, though, Deanna senses trouble, and the crew rush to the room where Malinson is screaming in pain. Once the door is open, they find the laser drill above him and carnage below. Act 2. Malinson is in bad shape. They cut all power to the room, and everyone except Data, LaForge, and Bjorn Benson beam up to the Enterprise sickbay. Data notices something weird. He thinks the laser drill acted as if it had will, like it knew what it was doing. Working from this theory, he asks for power to be restored to the room. Everything works perfectly until it doesn't. The laser turns toward Data and begins firing. LaForge can't cut power because the power has already been cut. While Data struggles, LaForge and Benson rush to the room. They can't open the doors. Just as Picard is about to demand an emergency beam out, Data emerges from the room unscathed, now certain that a mind of some sort was in control of the laser drill. Bjorn is really not happy. That laser took him a year to build, and I'm sure cost lots of money, money, money. On the Enterprise, Picard and Mandel have a bit of a showdown. Picard is suspending the work of the terraforming team until the mystery can be solved. When Mandel leaves on a huff, Data explains more that he is certain the laser drill was programmed to destroy anyone in the room. The question then becomes, who would do such a thing and why? Malinson is dead, too severely hurt by the laser, and now Picard asks Data and LaForge to beam back down to the lab on Valara 3 to see if they can piece together any clues about what was the cause. What they do find is most unexpected. It's a tiny pinpoint of light, flashing in patterns which LaForge describes as musical. It's not life as they know it, it's definitely not organic but Data thinks it could be the reason Mallinson was killed. Act 3. Unsure what it is they found on Valara 3, the possible life form is beamed up to the medical lab for Dr. Crusher to run tests. It's not carbon-based, but it may fit the criteria for life, reproducing, moving, eating, excreting, etc. She'll have to see if it holds up to scrutiny. They've never seen anything like it before. A life form that isn't based on carbon ever since Sahorta was removed from the memory banks in the computer. When a loud humming emanates from their sample, the crew gathered around back off. It seems to sense where they are. Magnifying the sample on their monitor, Dr. Crusher asks the computer to make sense out of it. The computer can't. There are patterns, but it should be impossible from this molecular makeup. Disregarding what should be happening, the computer gives an answer to Dr. Crusher. The unknown is alive. 
Picard confronts Mandel with this new information. Mandel insists that he had no idea and that he would never murder to protect his work. Once he's out of the room, Deanna says he's pretty much obsessed, but that's to be expected. Still, we can't pin the blame on him just yet. Louisa Kem is probably innocent. Just to check, Riker visits her in her quarters. She's actually really torn up about the whole thing, intrigued by the life form, but devastated that her career is in turmoil now. In the medical lab, things are changing. The hum has lowered. The energy being put out by the inorganic life form has subsided a bit. Then before you know it, we welcome into the world a healthy, companion, microscopic, light-emitting, definitely inorganic thing right next to the first one. They try to quarantine the life form, but the beam around its bell jar is reflected. As the crew leave the room, the Enterprise computer translation circuits come online in a garble. Picard makes the call to Riker on the bridge. Their visitor is definitely alive, and it's definitely trying to communicate with them. Act 4. Time to get everything out on the table. Picard again accuses Mandel of knowing full well what was happening on Valara 3, but Mandel still insists that this life was nothing more than light being refracted. Bjorn speaks up that the pattern of light in the sand, which might have been a kind of SOS, were simply ignored because they didn't mean anything to them. He's like, look, knowing me, knowing you, we did not do anything we thought was wrong. We were not trying to cause a Waterloo for some unknown life form. At the time, they simply didn't know better. But Picard has made it clear now that this life form has intelligence. Visual communication comes back from the medical lab, and it looks like the life form has been busy. There are now about eight of those little buggers where there were only two. The colony of cells has been dividing and replicating. When engineering calls the bridge, there is a problem. The quarantine they had set up around the medical lab is now starting to fail. On top of that, the Enterprise systems are acting a little haywire with people getting trapped in turbolifts and a couple of people trapped in a restroom. There's an energy fluctuation in their bell jar containing the life form, and then it speaks. Through the ship's universal translator, it addresses the crew who have reassembled on the bridge. It calls the humans ugly bags of mostly water and then lays out its totally understandable grievances. Those scientists drilled on its home, and now they've got a bone to pick with the Enterprise crew as well. Picard tries the old diplomatic standby, we come in peace. Deanna tries to butter them up with how beautiful they and all life really are. None of it's working. The translation goes offline, and the Enterprise is rocked violently by the life form, which grows in strength the more it reproduces. Act 5. We've not been very good about giving the new alien life form a name. Picard fixes that by dubbing it the microbrain, but sadly, microbrain isn't talking anymore. It's still chugging along, interfacing with the Enterprise computers, and there's not much anyone else can do about it. At one point, it looks like the energy the microbrain is giving off starts to slow down, and an attempt is made to beam it out of the lab back to Valara 3. That didn't work. Time for the gloves to come off. Picard orders the air evacuated from the lab, but that doesn't work either. Things are serious. The life form now threatens the safety of the Enterprise. Better convene in the conference room. A little deductive reasoning goes a long way. The microbrain is a single-celled organism, but the more cells, the greater the intelligence and power. 
that saline water just below the planet's surface was actually connecting the brains. And once the terraformers started to siphon away the water, the life forms fought back. They all get it now. The microbrain grows again, this time into a clearly visible crystal about the size of a baseball. There is a breakthrough, though. Data determines that the microbrain is photoelectric, using light for energy. Louisa Kem gets it. When they drilled through the sandy layer into the saline, the water table dropped, thus starving the organisms of the light they needed. With this new information, Picard orders that the light to the medical lab be cut. Since they have no control over it remotely, Riker rushes to the corridor outside the lab. It works. The microbrain is visibly weaker and communicates to Picard. It's dying. Picard says they will end this war. They don't want to fight. The microbrain seems desperate and, without the light, is in no position to negotiate. Picard says they will beam it home to the wet sand of Alara 3. When the microbrain agrees, the lights are brought back up in the medical lab, but Picard is asking just a little too much if the microbrain now trusts the humans. Nah, not really. Come back in 300 years. We'll see how we feel about you then. Picard gets it. Trust has to be earned. And then he makes good on his promise to beam the microbrain back home. Then he does exactly what Captain Kirk should have learned to do nearly a century before. Set up the safety cones around Valara 3 before heading away. The end. All right, I got two things. Yeah. First of all, way to blow first contact. <laughs> yeah, ouch. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The other one has nothing to do with the episode, but it has to do with this episode about that episode. Mm-hmm. What was up with the ABBA? What do you mean? I mean, what was up with the ABBA? That's, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what you mean, Ken. <laughs> what was up with the ABBA, dude? Serious. Uh, I, I don't know what you mean, uh, other than just wrap it up by saying, uh, Fernando Chiquita, uh, gimme, 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 voulez-vous. All right? <laughs> Moving on. Why? Why? <laughs> it will vex me. It was Bjorn. Okay. Oh, Bjorn. And okay. if I think of all the Bjorns I know. Yep. Uh, that's the only one. You know, it's interesting. I, I totally would have gone um, assimilating into the collective because what I think of is Bjorn Borg. Right. Yeah. Uh, See? Yeah. I, well, yeah. I, that, <laughs> so that would have been... Whatever, dude. I, no, honestly, I couldn't figure it out. So thank you because it would have driven me crazy. I didn't have enough uh, Swedish tennis jokes. Okay. Oh, there you go. Well, no, it still would have been Borg. But anyway. Yeah. Oh, we don't know about the Borg yet, though, so never we mind. Don't. Go ahead, we you were saying. Who are you, you talking saying, about? Yeah. Uh, where was I? Way to blow first contact. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And uh, we'd have a short memory, too, because I, I do recall that the Horda was a silicon life form. We have, uh, you know what we've done, though? We've stopped name-checking um, TOS at this point in mm, next gen. I mean, in yeah. next gen, we've stopped doing. Oh that. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think people would necessarily go aha because I mean the other thing is the Horda did look alive even if it wasn't even if it was made of stuff we didn't recognize as being alive. I mean it did scurry. Mm-hmm. We yeah, saw people did. screaming as it was coming towards them, which is very right. different than you know, oh look at that light. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, but I mean they, they are really they're stymied. They're stumped by the whole idea that anything could be life and not be organic. Yeah. And, you know, th- this is something that here and now in the early 21st century, th- there are scientists working on that very idea that you could have life existing elsewhere in the universe that is not organic. And it just happens that James Kirk interacted with one 
a hundred years before the Enterprise crew found this. Yeah, it's a little while from now, though. Hey, I'm gonna I give know. I gotta give writers uh, of TNG a little bit of credit, by the way. Knocked mm-hmm. me off my game this week. Oh. I think I said a couple of weeks ago that uh, any mention of the holodeck in the prologue meant that it was a holodeck episode. Right. Like, yeah. Riker mentions the holodeck in the prologue, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. We don't go there, but we know what's on Riker's mind. <laughs> that's, that's true. And I give it up. That's true. Yeah. No, I mean, and you knew because there was no emphasis on it, but I was just like, wow, didn't I just say like two or three weeks ago that <laughs> if they mention it, then it's going to be. And now here they are going, oh, you think so? Huh, smart guy. <laughs> right. Also, they're really forward thinking because to screw me up two weeks later almost 30 years ago is kind mm-hmm. of awesome. Well played, whoever wrote this episode. Well played. <laughs> nice. I know you already said who wrote it, but I, I've, I've forgotten. Yeah, if, if, if it's not a pseudonym yeah. for uh, for DC Fontana, then, you know. <laughs> right. They're all, they're all. I, yeah, I, thought, I thought about interrupting you and making that joke. And right. you know you know who those three people are? DC Fontana. DC Fontana. Exactly. Right. <laughs> hey, um, since you were talking about the prologue, that whole scene where Picard is talking to Mandel and Mandel is shutting him down at every turn, it, it made me think. So you are to assume that Picard is seeing Mandel on that huge, huge display on mm-hmm. the, the front of the bridge. And you are also to assume that Mandel is seeing Picard or he's seeing the bridge or he's seeing something with a camera right. on his end. You know, he's looking right. at a computer screen or a TV or whatever. And I kept thinking during this whole thing, Deanna keeps leaning over to him and saying, no, 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 yeah, he's hiding something. And then literally cuts the transmission. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's still video coming through. Maybe not. And I'm thinking Mandel can see this, right? Well, you know, we don't actually know for sure. Uh, wouldn't it be funny if um, if Picard's send was like the Ferengi send? <laughs> right. Just a giant head exactly. on a white background. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a, right. a huge Patrick Stewart face. You can't even see his ears. Just like right. that big, like right in the camera. And so then he wouldn't right. necessarily see it. Maybe. Maybe that's it. Nick but but it also shows you how they get very impatient when Mandel doesn't pick up right away. And know, that kind of right? goes, yeah, back to my thing about Angel One. It's like they just expect you to be there at your desk, ready to answer a call from a starship at any time. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of funny. I right. mean, although in fairness, the terraforming station is fairly small. It is. It shouldn't it have is. taken that long to get there. But yeah, you know, he could have been, uh, he could have been indisposed. He could have been forming a Terra. Yes. That, you know? that too. Yeah. Um, speaking of those terraformers, um, when Mallinson, oh man, it, it's like, it's like the new you scene in Logan's run just gone horribly wrong with that laser firing at him. And he's laying there crumpled on the floor and they go in Picard. I mean, sorry, Riker calls up to the enterprise and he just basically says like, yeah, I don't think he's going to make it. I'm like, <laughs> he's right there. He's right there. Yeah. Yeah, how, good, do, how would that make him feel? Good point about that. Yeah. 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 And, and then shortly thereafter, Dr. Crusher very nonchalantly delivers the news that he did die. You know? Yes. Just on the bridge. Like, yeah, he didn't make it. Uh, <laughs> we got to come on. <laughs> yeah. That's, yes. That, that was a little, she didn't even seem upset by it. No. But I guess he was, he was a, an ugly bag of mostly um, detritus. Well, and Riker pretty much made his fate inevitable. I yeah, think. That's true. Maybe she didn't yeah. even try. No, no, I heard. I just, you know, I, I looked. Yeah, didn't seem like. I thought it was kind of funny, actually. So, so the engineer when they when they get there, right? The engineer meets them all 
and meets mm-hmm. Data, and he's like, whoa, yeah. you, I want to know so much about you. But then Data breaks his stuff, <laughs> and he's right. like, dude, you broke my drill. Right, <laughs> right, right. I- I'm kind of cooler than a drill, and-, and also more important. And he's just like, you know, he-, yeah. he doesn't seem quite as impressed with the robot anymore. I guess that's really what I'm thinking. And I kept thinking, you know, we could replicate 50 of those lasers on the Enterprise yeah. in no time. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that when he said, oh, a year's work. I mean, did it really take that long to put together that drill? Really? Yeah. Because, you know. We know I, you got it from Ikea. I mean, I was going to say, I, you know, <laughs> I can put together a desk. I can put together <laughs> shelves. I mean, uh, granted, a laser drill is going to be a little bit more difficult, but I'm assuming they're making them someplace. Right. As opposed, I mean, did he actually have to grind the, grind the, I don't know what goes into a laser, something lasery. Do you have to grind Some the crystals? Parts. Yeah. What did you say? Laser parts. Laser parts? I thought you said something hearts. I was like, oh, man, lasers sound like almost cultish. No, but... (laughs) There's a heart involved. But you know about terraformers. Here's the problem. They're often obsessive. It frequently goes with their career profile. Yeah. Because Deanna is profiling. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It makes... It kind of makes sense, though, right? I mean, they're they're living in like a room. It kind of does, but I mean... It, 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 I, don't know, I, I thought it was just a little bit uncomfortable. It's like, this is generalized. I mean, if these are the only terraformers ever, and it, it well, can't be the really, only terraformers ever. We'll see exactly. Right. You know, so I assume there are a lot of them out there. And they probably call, come from all walks of life, mm. and they probably have many and varied qualities of personality and interests that they bring to the job. And Deanna's like, no, they're just all obsessive. They're crazy. Maybe. Well, (laughs) here's the thing, though. I mean, I would say practical jokers should not go into terraforming. No. I would say that somebody who's really outgoing and gregarious (laughs) should not go into terraforming, either because you're going to run out of, like, people to talk to, or, Mm. you know, the other four people are going to get tired of you. Yeah. You know, just the, uh, yes, it is still hot enough for me. I Why? Yeah, right. uh, every day for how long now? Uh, yeah. That'd be terrible. There are two things I noticed about the terraforming thing, or two questions that I had. Well, one okay. was a notice and one was a question. Okay. I think that I noticed that uh, imaging station is amazing. That thing where, you know, where she's got the globe and she can move oh. it. And then it was just a yeah. great, it was a great sort of like ancillary piece of technology, you know, yeah. kind of yeah, like, yeah. like that time that we saw the communicator. It, 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 does, it means nothing, but it's a great effect and it's a great, it's a great little showy piece. Uh, the question that I have is um, we've got like, you know, galactic travel now, right? Mm-hmm. We're able to go to all these planets, uh, lots of M-class planets that we've come mm-hmm. across. Why are we terraforming? Is it something we should actually be doing? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I thought about that. And that's actually a point that maybe ties into something in my notes for the discussion later. Oh, okay. But but I, I figured the short answer to that question is that there are Class M planets, but realistically, let, let's say that, okay, we're, we're discovering all these planets now. Right. And hopefully we will discover in the future that some of those truly are Class M planets. They, they have things like water and trees and an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere and things that we would need. But realistically, if you have that, that means that you also have other organisms. And the likelihood that we would get to one of those planets and be killed <laughs> very quickly yeah. by foreign organisms uh, is probably pretty high. Hmm. So I would think that even if there are a lot of class M planets out there, there probably aren't a lot of class M planets you would want to live on. Maybe some that you could visit. 
Um, but there might also be quite a long time in between there where you've got to determine absolutely the safety of human presence and intervention there. All right. I'm going with that. That's fine. I just, okay. I was just, you know, I found myself wondering, you know, why. Yeah. I mean, if yeah, it's yeah. just one of those, you know, to see if we can or because we can or something like that. I'm, I, I guess I'm even okay with that. If it is a, if it is a barren rock, yeah. uh, just make sure it actually is a barren rock. And of course, you know, with having to change what our definition of, of barren would be or change our definition of what life would be. Right, right. Then there's, a, there's actually a, no way to know. Well, you get into a difficult thing there, which is, uh, you know, we have to find not only the right planet, but it, it's got to be in the right place. And it, so you couldn't theoretically just go terraform, you know, Saturn. Right. Because, you know, the, the makeup of that planet doesn't lend itself to that. And it's so far away from the sun, that you probably couldn't sustain it, even if you could introduce enough oxygen or water and and physically change the composition of that planet into something that we could actually use and change the gravity. You know, there's so many factors there, but I'll leave that to scientists who are actually trying to figure out how to terraform, I don't know, Mars. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, but let's talk about engineering. All right. So uh, here's a great scene, a great moment. The unknown engineering person who calls up to the bridge about a problem with the seal that's holding the life form in the lab. And uh, Riker just leaves the bridge, leaves command and puts data in charge. And I thought they're getting this personnel thing all backwards and all wrong. (laughs) Um, data or LaForge should have gone down to engineering or right. should have gone to the lab. Riker, kind of useless at a point like that. By the way, the unknown engineering person is uh, Caroline Barry, never to be seen again on Star Trek. I felt bad because she has like a couple of lines and it's like, oh, this is the the engineering person of the week. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just no more out of her you know uh, this is one of those times shouldn't Worf have actually said to Riker as he was on his way out uh, sir you're in command like he did to Jordy, right right yeah. right <laughs> stay on the bridge what you are you going to go everywhere yeah. 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 yeah uh but she does do something very important in that brief dialogue with Riker um a we get to see that cool schematic on the wall so we get an idea of where the medical lab is in relation to the rest of the ship mm-hmm. and she confirms for us there's at least one restroom on the enterprise and it belongs to the programmers how what she says that there uh there were people trapped in a turbo lift okay and then she says there are two people trapped in a restroom oh yeah totally missed that yeah i mean it makes sense that there would be <laughs> right, right. She says one of the restrooms. So actually, we know there's at least two. Good. Well, there are four holodecks we know now. So hopefully, yeah. there's you know, hopefully there's at least two restrooms. Although I guess right. maybe the holodeck could double because it can be whatever you want it to be. Right. Very true. Yeah. That's so, <laughs> right. that's so terrible. It is. Yeah. Sorry about that. My bad. It, Let's go on yeah. to something else. I have a question. Let's do it. Okay. Mi- microbrain. Really? <laughs> I know. Because we've heard that term before. Well, Picard just learned it. He has to use it somewhere. I guess so, but I think he's using it incorrectly, unless that's why the aliens get mad at us at the end. Well, you're just, no, you're too rude. (laughs) Because I know that that's an insult, because it was Q, right? Q called uh, Worf that. He sure did. Yeah. Acro head. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. I can't believe we reused that so soon. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I did think, you know, the the microbrain character, 
where it was interesting because we, we've seen things kind of like this in Star Trek before. It, here was a, a super advanced intelligence. It, it can interface with computers. It can even pick the right words in the translator. Like that, that's kind of the, the interesting thing. You, the, the translator, we assume, has to have a baseline in order to compare languages. This thing, for all we know, doesn't even have a language. It just has patterns and impulses, but it, it, it can figure out enough of that. It can control pieces of the enterprise once it's figured out that. Um, and it has an understanding of abstract concepts like life and death. It says to Picard, we're dying. Mm-hmm. You're killing it. I thought that was really interesting. Um, but then again, it's just another in the long line of super advanced beings that really want nothing to do with us. Yeah, except for maybe way, way in the distant future. I think about that episode of the animated series where they actually say, yeah, come back and whatever. You know, I can't remember because it was a very vague description of time. It just seemed like it was going to be a long time. Yeah. Didn't the Metrons do that as well in, in the original series? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah they're like, we're not day. ready for you. Yeah. yeah. No, it was it's actually been interesting because in TOS we've seen some. I'm sorry, in TNG, we've seen some, you know, some like like the Traveler, right? Yeah, I was right, like, oh, right. you guys are starting to get interesting, which, you know, the Metrons wouldn't think so at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily seeing the whole super advanced thing. I mean, yes, it learned how to use the computer and OK, I'm fine with that. But I'm mm-hmm. I'm actually just beginning to wonder if 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 maybe the, the galaxy isn't just full of, you know, standoffish sort of jerks <laughs> because yeah, right. I mean, like like the harada right come back when you learn to say hello properly right mm-hmm. i mean that's 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 their thing right if you right. can't even say hello i don't want to talk to you and and these things the micro brains and i can't believe we're going to stick with calling them that but the micro brains say uh no you're too arrogant yeah. Okay, well, really? Yeah. So I'm not allowed to be here because I'm too arrogant. Okay, <laughs> let's consider that for just one second. I yeah. mean, I'm thinking maybe the Federation doesn't even want these aliens in it. You know, no. if, if this is the way they're going to be, if this is how every meeting is going to start, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to go hang out with the Klingons. Seriously, we would rather hang out with the Klingons. I'm just, <laughs> say hello. I think I want my nickname for you to be Home Soil. Then I can call you and say things like, What's up, Home Soil? Do you want to go for coffee? And then we would. Ken, what you brought up in the last segment about why do we terraform, that that really kind of struck a nerve with me for the, the idea here in this episode because it raised a lot of questions. And I, and I thought, okay, can we realistically get to a point where terraforming is viable? Mm-hmm. And yeah, scientists are working on that right now because if we intend to thrive and propagate as a species, we'll probably have to do it in other places than just Earth. Um, but then I thought, well, what do we do then? You know, does that mean that people who want to live one way move to a terraformed planet and others stay behind? And what happens when those differences evolve over a few generations? Mm -hmm. And and you could kind of make that argument about people in a shorter term of history who would choose to uproot like that. You know, they might be very different from those who stay behind. You look at the westward expansion in the U.S., you know, at least romantically, we say it took that rugged individualist to, to move out and to 
traverse the country. But it seems like we're almost establishing that in the future, many people like to be either alone, <laughs> you know, you've got a joke about it before, or at least away from dense population. You know, whether it's the colonists, because yeah. we're always running into colonists, we have terraformers, even a starship crew. Well, the Enterprise, yeah, a thousand people, that's a lot of people. But they're also on a ship away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of getting away from Earth, and there's a whole lot of getting away from other people. Uh, there's less getting away from other people on the Enterprise, or maybe these are just the you know interesting stories. Because we're always going mm-hmm. someplace, right? At yeah. Le- at least on the on the um, 1701D. Mm-hmm. It's, well, we're going to this planet to talk to these people. And there are these people we haven't talked to in 60 years, so we want to see them. You know, and they and, still don't want anything to do with us. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know? uh, yes, there's a, a, a planet made of cardboard that, that seems to be giving a stink eye. So we're going right. to go there and find out why they don't want to be our friends. Right. Um, you actually bring up a couple of, a couple of interesting uh, uh, thoughts. Uh, Asimov dealt with sort of the differences in the way planets evolve when they come from Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some of the robot novels, I think some of the later robot novels. So that's kind of an interesting thought. At the same time, so they they all, although they're all originally from Earth, they don't they don't really have that identity. Uh, conversely, and spoiler alert, I'm about to ruin the end of Martian Chronicles. Okay, oh, no. Martian okay. Chronicles was written close to 50 years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Some of the stories are much older than that, even. So if you haven't read it and you don't want to hear it. So at the end of Martian Chronicles, uh, Earth goes to war with itself. There's a nuclear war on Earth. And what's interesting is almost everybody on Mars goes back to Earth mm. because they feel this, you know, they, they feel this tug. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you're talking about. Now, I don't think Martian Chronicles had, I don't think the people on Mars had been there nearly as long as the, as the planets in the robot novels that Asimov wrote. But it is kind of, it's, I mean, it's an interesting, you know, way to what would happen, you know, further yeah. down the road. It's yeah. I, and I don't know what the answer to that would be. As far as the people on the Enterprise, you actually remind me, you stirred up a lot with just that one little part there, John. Uh, you mm-hmm. reminded me right. of uh, Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves. Oh, yeah, yeah. With the whole thing where he wants to he wants to go work on the frontier. And mm-hmm. uh, and the guy says, why do, why do you want to work on the frontier? And he says, I want to see it before it's gone. Yeah. So that's kind of who who might be on the Enterprise. It's not necessarily they want to be away from people, but, you know. They want to they they want to see before you know before there's an exit sign in a Stuckey's maybe. Well, what's interesting though is that with terraforming you can keep creating frontiers and yeah. theoretically you can keep going um, and sort of carve out this very specific kind of existence that you want to have. Yeah, I was gonna. I'm not sure you're creating frontiers in that respect though. Are you? It's more like it's more like a planned development. Yeah, well, <laughs> point. Right, I right, mean, right. you as the terraformer are still yeah. doing the frontier thing, but then if you move to a terraform planet, then you've, you've sort of moved that like that that planned city that Disney built in Disney World. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, now well, let's see if a community grows around, you know, the shopping mall and these stores <laughs> and these right. houses we built. Yeah, well, to to an extent, yes, but I mean, you you are still going to a place where theoretically, when they've done terraforming, it's just you know trees, oxygen, and water. And you've got to carve out that life that you want there. There's no just like, well, I'm going to run down to Target because I need, you know, to put up new shelves. That's what people stuck on Earth are still doing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one one assumes though that there would be a replicator of some sort, right? One would hope. Yeah. One would hope. You're not waiting for trees to grow for 50 years so that you can like, you know, 
knock them down so you can build a log cabin at that point. Well, you know, if you really like roughing it, then you would. Well, if you really Which, like roughing it, then you'd find one of those Class M planets. It's a little too far from the sun, wouldn't you? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, let's think about this. So, you know, I, I want to talk about Mandel's motivation and, mm-hmm. and his character because I, I thought, well, let's look at the terraforming thing from a different point of view. What if this, the, the idea of terraforming at all, is absolutely necessary for the survival of the human race? You know, we make certain assumptions about Star Trek that Earth is fine, that mm-hmm. we don't have war and hunger and famine, that we're fine. Okay, but let's twist that a little bit um, and assume that certain resources have been used up elsewhere, whether it's on Earth or other planets that we might be living on. And what if the new life form discovered at Valara 3 wasn't intelligent and specifically deadly because this thing is deadly? Yeah. Um, but what if we were already on a planet and discovered a benign microorganism like like an amoeba? Mm-hmm. And that was it. And I guess what I'm asking is, you know, are there any circumstances that could justify possibly Mandel's actions? You know, in theory, he should have just called it off as soon as he discovered that life form and even even picked up the hint that this was intelligence. And certainly before he put his crew in danger, that was his other big mistake. But it then makes you think, well, what drove him to that point? Was it just purely hubris? And as Deanna would say, his obsessive dedication to his work or is there some other way to look at the motivation for him to say, like, well, th- this is critical. This is absolutely critical for the survival of the human race. It's hard to say that in Star Trek, because in Star yeah. Trek, as I said, everything's fine. Right. You know, um, but I did wonder, looked at from a different point of view, could could we bend our own rules at some point and say, well, Mandel's got to do what Mandel's got to do <laughs> because other people's lives are relying on his ability to do his job. Well, yeah. I mean, this goes back to, I mean, this goes back to so much of what we talked about in the original series. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. No. I mean, the answer is, <laughs> the answer is supposed to be no. The it's answer supposed is supposed to be, to be yeah. no. I mean, is that the answer today? I doubt it. Is that the right. answer that a lot of people would actually glom to? I doubt that, too. I mean, mm-hmm. but there's no guarantee that being there is going to kill that amoeba anyway. So, yeah. I mean, if you say, okay, uh, the fate of the of the human race hinges on being able to, to turn this planet into a Class M planet, if we can figure out that it's not going to kill the amoeba, then maybe we can coexist. But, I mean, mm-hmm. if it were actually going to kill it, if it were going to ruin things, see, you're... you're uh, the what if that you're setting up doesn't work exactly though, because I, I I think the assumption with the prime directive is, look, we're doing this for fun, or if not for fun, we're doing it for you know some reason. But it, none of mm-hmm. it has to do with anybody's survival, right? Yeah. yeah. Because because the idea is that you can start over, or at least the idea is well, you can't do this here. Nobody's saying you can't do this, but you can't do this here. If you find out that there's you know something here that you're going to be screwing with. You can't do this here. That's a very different thing. But, but I mean, we've been given to understand from, 
well, from both the original series and especially more in The Next Generation. Next Generation talks even more like, boy, can you believe all the dumb stuff we did, huh? Mm-hmm. Like last week, you know, oh, yeah, we had a problem with our ozone layer in the 21st century, but that was a long time ago. You know, <laughs> right, things are good right. now. You know, I mean, yeah. every, 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 every indication is that things are just, you know, going fantastically. Right. So, I mean, could you ever justify that? Not in the Star Trek setting, you shouldn't be able to. But. No, but see, that, that's what made me then think about Mandel's motivation. I mean, it, if it is just purely that, where he's chalking yes. it up to his obsessive uh, uh, work ethic, then, okay, I, I'm well, all right. I don't know that it's necessarily his obsessive work ethic. I mean, here's the thing. This episode requires people to reexamine what they believe and, and how certain things are defined, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In this case, it's what they know life to be. And that's not happening so much on this planet. Uh, with the things that they see, it's like, oh, that's weird. Oh, that's odd. But that's not life because it doesn't, you know, fit my de- definition of life. I mean, they have to change their perspective and be willing to redefine something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and and so then, you, I mean, he he can close his eyes at that point. Well, no, this isn't life because look, it doesn't have any of the markers of life. And I really need to go ahead and get on with my work because my work is, you know, it defines me. It's who I am. Let's say, I mean, to use a, to use a sort of a Rikerism, right? Right. Um, I mean, so his motivation. I mean, it does strike me honestly as hubris. It does strike me as his um, obsessive dedication to work. Now, whether that's just because that's the work he loves to do, or because he wants to call the planet Planet Mendel one day. I mean, who knows <laughs> what his motivation is for that? Except that he doesn't want anything to get in his way, and so he's not willing to look beyond that. I mean, he's he's willing to turn a blind eye, basically. So that, so that he can keep doing what he wants to do. That's quite interesting because we did touch on this last week. Uh, we were talking about in When the Bow Breaks, the Aldeans, and uh, at least the Big Radus turning a blind eye to the reality. Dude, you, you have to. You yeah, have well, to. okay. Um, you know, the, the reality of their situation, the new information coming in about this is what's happening for real. Therefore, your plan of action is you know, not only inappropriate, but it's misguided because you have the wrong information. Mandel states over and over again here that he was going on Federation intelligence, but the intel, well, yeah, (laughs) the intelligence is incomplete and he didn't change his mind when new evidence was presented. At a certain point he does. I I give the Aldeans more of a pass. Yeah, I know. know. Oh, please. He only changes his mind because he gets caught. I don't I look he's hiding something in the beginning. He suspects something. And and somehow halfway through the episode we decide that he does not suspect that this was life because he was hiding something in the beginning. He saw something that he did not tell the um uh Kim that he didn't tell Kim about. Yeah, it was Kim. I mean yeah, yeah, he's I mean he's yeah. I give the Aldeans a pass because the Aldeans were dying. Yeah. And they were desperate and they and, and there was there was new information. You're right. But they're really just presented with that new information while we're there. Right. There was right, nothing right. that indicated to them anything differently. And, and their minds don't work in a way that they would have thought differently. Mendel is hiding this. And and it's not even a life or death situation. It's just something he wants to do. Maybe it's something he's been tasked with doing. Maybe it's his job and it's going to be a bummer if he doesn't get to do it. Or I don't know what happens to him if he doesn't terraform this thing, but he is choosing to ignore it for no better reason than he's got a job to do. That Well, yeah. I, I mean, he, he does. I, I, I'll give him this much. He had made up his mind. He was blinded by what he thought was going on. 
Now, he acted inappropriately. He didn't report it. He did. He let his crew stay in danger. You know, all these things that added up. He was hiding the information. Right. Um, but ultimately, in the conference room of the Enterprise, he says, now I don't know. Because they didn't get to the point of trying to figure out, is this thing alive? How do we talk to it? Can we talk to it? Do we just need to pack up and go? All right. So what was he hiding then? He was hiding that they had found anything that could even be conceived as life or okay. studied as life. So, you know, I, I don't think they had gotten to the point so where. Then, well, no, I mean, if, if that's what he's hiding, then he knew that it was a possibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, but, so he's done at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, I no justifi- there's no justification for what he's doing. I mean, he's hiding stuff. That he knows if anybody else saw it could stop his work and nothing's going to stop his work. So yeah. he's not going to think about it or consider it. And he's certainly not going to tell anybody about it. Although he's obviously already thought about it or considered it because he's going to do everything he can to keep anybody else from finding out about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. No, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I will go with you. I mean, it, again, this I think this is this whole fascinating psychological thing here that, that, that the guy had his mind made up he was done and just put his fingers in his ears when new information came in yeah except but, except it's actually worse than that i, I think i think uh, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, i had yeah. actually said that earlier that he was just closing his eyes and pretending it wasn't there but he's really not because he knows enough to try to keep picard off the planet mm-hmm. he knows enough yeah. to try to keep the enterprise away and and knowing that he knows that they might find something that could stop him should be enough to get him stopped. He doesn't get to stand there on the bridge at the end and go, oh, look, I was trying to create a place for life, but I was about to destroy one. Gee, you think? Is that not why you tried to keep me from coming down to the planet? It was actually an interesting moment, uh, too. This was kind of weird to me. And, eh, well, mm-hmm. I'll just say. So so Data, Geordi, and Worf are going over the chemical or elemental makeup of the, you know, little tiny crystalline entities. Right. <laughs> they're growing right, right there, right? Yeah. And uh, Worf says, you know, they're talking about this, and they're talking about this, and Worf says, but is it alive? And the computer, which has no predisposition for or against life, right? Mm-hmm. The computer who does not have a horse in this race listens to all of it mm-hmm. and says, yes. Basically. Yeah. You know, right, so Worf right. says, but is it life? And the computer says, yes. And Worf says, I wasn't asking you. Dude, right. what the heck? Are you kidding yeah. me? Okay. So, so like the one dispassionate thing two if you count data, the one dispassionate thing there is like saying, you know, you have presented evidence. And so let me say, uh, without, without any hint of bias, because I can't have one because I am a computer <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yes, this is life. And Worf's like, yeah, I don't want to hear it from you, Mr. Science. I want to hear it from people who are alive. I mean, there's a, there's like a, there's, there's, uh, there's almost like a, and it wasn't even a moment. It, like he said that and then they cut to another scene, but that's, you know, I, I want Jordy to turn to him and go, dude, what is up with hate not science? Cause seriously, right. right. I mean, you, dude, I mean, I, and I want him to say dude two more times too in my yeah. alternate telling of this story because, <laughs> cause I was in there going, dude. Ugly. Ugly. Ugly bags of mostly water. Time now to figure out whether home soil is something to dig or something to turn under. Well, 
I don't know what the score is at this point. I I, I would say though that the home soil aliens uh, are definitely uh, they're definitely up. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but as the game draws to a close, we do want to ask the questions that we ask on uh, on occasions such as these because we do do this occasionally. Uh, time to figure out the messages, morals, and meanings of home soil. And whether or not the whole episode uh, stands the test of time, whether it holds up, whether it bears watching today. Uh, Mr. John Champion. Well, here's what's weak. Um, There are a few little slow parts, and it's a bit cheesy that the alien life form has this computerized voice once it patches into the computer. That you have to just... You, you got to swallow that with it with a big grain of crystalline entity salt. By the way, I'm terrified now thinking that this thing is related to the crystalline entity. <laughs> you know? um, I, I, I did have a question I forgot to bring up earlier. Why yeah. is it in uh, sick bay? It looks like the crystalline entity, but on the planet, it looks like nothing. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you would think that they would keep growing, and they would. You the would. planet would just be full of them. You yeah. would indeed. Yes, go ahead. Uh, no, until I'm sorry. such point they break off and go into space and eat things. Start eating colonists. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Posing for know, pictures. <laughs> right, right. And eating colonists. <laughs> exactly. But, but those were the only things that I could really fault in this episode, um, mm-hmm. because there's a lot that's really strong here. It plays exactly into the ideas raised by the original series. There's a real sense of mystery and discovery and danger. Um, There's the opportunity for growth and learning once we decide to do what's right and learn about the alien. Mm -hmm. There's heavy, heavy shades of devil in the dark. I wasn't just poking fun because of the Horda being a silicon uh, entity itself. Yeah. Um, And once again, in this one, the humans are the devils. Um, there's a bit of a Frankenstein story here. If you want to go that route with, uh, you know, Mandel insisting that he creates life rather than destroying it. But this is one of the few times so far in our first half of the first season of next gen that I really thought about the original series and not in a negative way, like the naked now ripping off the naked time. Mm -hmm. This brought back themes and ideas and science and all of this stuff together um, that really held my attention. And again, big, big uh, props to Walter Gotell (laughs) as Kurt Mandel, because he brings a certain kind of gravitas and, and weight and seriousness to the role. Yeah. So um, there's so much that I liked about this. And yes, I think it holds up, particularly if you look at it the way that we do, when we've been looking at the themes and stories of Star Trek, this fits right up there with those themes and stories and messages. What about you, Ken? Yeah, same. I mean, honestly, the weakest part of the whole thing to me was um, Miss Hawaii, and she's she's very pretty, and she's very pleasant, um, but she's not a great actress. But but I I think I've said a million times, I mean, if that's that's my complaint, Mm -hmm. then I'm okay. I mean, it was was actually, it was was a well-done story. It was a well-told episode. I still have, I still have the problem of, I think we're letting Mendel off the hook. Um, I think, Mm. I think he is let off the hook in this episode in ways that he should not be. I mean, he was obviously up to something. He obviously knew that there was something going on and that ends up sort of being a plot hole for me that he gets to stand there at the end. You know, I mean, the binars for crying out loud are going to face charges for (laughs) for what they did and they were trying to save their planet. Mendel was obviously not concerned about the indigenous inhabitants of these, this planet, whether it be the spotted owl or a tree squirrel or a hyper-intelligent computer that it turns out is living just below the surface. 
Uh, he was not concerned at all about what's going on on this planet. That part bothers me a tiny bit, but that's not even whether the episode holds up. That's a, you know, a plot hole, I would say. For the most part, I would say the episode holds up, yes. Maybe Mandel does face charges in our rewriting <laughs> because we well, did a lot of rewriting on the previous episode. I expect it to be stated, though. I mean, as it was yeah, for the yeah. binars, you know, I mean, in the end, honestly, when he gets to stand there at the end and feel terrible about what they almost did. Well, he's the one who almost did it, you know, and yeah. so I, I kind of wish that had I kind of wish that had been done uh, differently. I, I don't want to be the guy who is trying to get Mandel off the hook. That That's not my position on this. Yeah. Mandel acted in incorrectly and improperly in many, many ways. I do think though that that there's a certain point where he doesn't have the full picture in his head and he, he is putting the blinders on for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, because he doesn't want the full picture. I mean, honestly, it's, it, he strikes me as somebody who it's deforestation. I mean, he strikes me as people today. I mean, he strikes me as people who are like, oh, well, we don't know what that is. There's no mm-hmm. there's no proof that that is that, you know, climate or, uh, <laughs> you know, he strikes me as somebody who wants to do something the way he wants to do something. And so he's not going to consider other possibilities. And what he keeps falling back on is, hey, look, you guys were the ones who said Right. He is mm-hmm. he's down there. He's getting new information. The new information he's getting is geometric patterns showing up in the sand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. is getting yeah. new information. But what he keeps saying is, uh, you guys check this out and you guys said it was fine. So I'm going to keep doing this until you guys tell me it's not. He's there. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. I mean, it, 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 he now I'm getting more angry about him, honestly. It, it's 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 a. It's a hole in the plot. Either, he's either, the, he, either he is yeah. being let off the hook or they forgot halfway through that he was a bad guy in the beginning because he's a bad guy in the beginning. Yeah. It seems to me. Yeah. Sorry. Well, uh, let's talk about the messages. Though. All right. What, uh, what, what else did we find here? Um, um, are you asking me or are you going to yeah, tell me? Uh, no, you, you first. Well, well, mine's, I mean, just the whole, you know, uh, be open to new ideas. Though maybe more than that, don't be so bent on doing what it is that you want to do that you ignore any reasons to not do that. I mean, yeah. that, that really is what he boils down to, to me, is he he wanted he wanted things to be the way he wanted things to be. And so he is either going to rely on somebody else's information or just turn a blind eye. And mm. that that to me is is one of the biggest things in here. And of course, you know, be be willing to reexamine your own uh, preconceived notions, e- even if it does involve something like, is that alive? <laughs> <laughs> right. It looks dead or not. Right. It looks inert, but maybe it's. Nerd, I don't know <laughs> what the proper way to say that is. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, it's it's almost like checking your work as you go in a way, or doing the right thing. I don't know. I mean, he is he a hapless bad guy or is he an evil bad guy? Either way, I would say. I mean, everything that he did, don't do that. I mean, that's that's kind of, that's yeah, kind of yeah. the message. Uh, it seems to me. Yeah, he's the worst example. Well, one of many bad examples of yeah. motivated reasoning. You know, I, the, here's the thing that I hold in my head that is what I have to do, and I will do this. And not only will I ignore other evidence, I will twist that evidence to justify what I've already decided to do. Right. You know? Yes. Um, so then I look at this and I go, okay, well, it, it, does this episode have any kind of condemnation of science or or a, a you know, don't fool with Mother Nature kind of message? And I, I really don't think so. You know, again, no. the, the technology is neutral. It's It happens to be what obsessed and drove 
Kurt Mandel, and it's what he does with it right. that is a big, big problem here. Um, but if you were to kind of globally look at those messages, well, the ends do not justify the means, right. you know, uh, clearly with uh, with a character like Mandel. Um, and, you know, I go back to something that you said early on, Ken, and that's that the prime directive still means doing the hard thing even when the easy thing would be a whole lot more convenient for all involved. Mm-hmm. It, it would have been a whole lot more convenient for them to just go like, well, okay, there's this thing here. We don't really understand it. We're not going to bother to figure out if it's alive or not. We'll just keep drilling and keep wiping out what's here um, because it's convenient. And it's convenient for Mandel to ignore any contrary evidence. Um, so, yeah, and uh, Picard hammers him on the prime directive. And well, he should have. Picard has a great line at the end, too, when he is addressing the microbrain. Ah, that, that, now that you phrase it, 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 it seems so, so <laughs> insulting. And really, they were trying to be kind about it. Um, he says, we will end this war if you end the war. And we've kind of seen that before. Again, going back to the original series. Yeah. All it takes is the first one to not fight to find a solution. Yeah. Now. Picard's got the upper hand. They can turn off the lights, you know, (laughs) until such point, though, that this hyper intelligent crystalline being figures out a way to not let them turn off the lights. Right. Because that that point could come. Yeah. Um, It's actually kind of amazing to me that they can't even open the door sometimes, but they can totally turn off the light. You know, right. Right. Yeah. Um, But that was another uh, another nice takeaway for me. And then I I, I would have to say unequivocally that all of these messages hold up quite well. Yeah. Given any context. Yeah. Except for the I mean, my only problem with it and and the more we think about it, the more trouble I have with it. My only problem with it is the treatment of Mandel. Uh, But I mean, it, Mm -hmm. it, it does give you it gives you a lot to think about without having to make up a lot of stuff. You know, because yeah. we, we've yeah. had amazing discussions before about things that weren't even close to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> right, and this is right. all presented here for us. So that's kind of it's convenient. It actually saves a little bit of work um, uh, <laughs> right. for us, certainly. If you had some thoughts on this episode, not you, John, you've shared oh. yours. OK, I was going to write in. Yeah, I was going to say, well, okay. wow, you are you're you're almost psychic, though, because you did know that I was going to say if, if other people had some thoughts on this episode, <laughs> or if they want to join the conversation on this or any other episode. Uh, lots of ways to get in touch with us, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Our handle in each of those places, Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Uh, we have a website for our show. It is missionlogpodcast.com. But if that's too much to put for a URL, there are a couple of others that you can check out. Uh, trekmovie.com is currently carrying Mission Log, and we're grateful that they are. And we're on Trek FM, which is online at trek.fm. Remember, any place you get in touch with us, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. All right, Ken. Well, next week there's more to come, and I have to say it's about time. Star Trek, it's coming of age. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Ken's being too hard on Mandel, he's just a guy who believes on Wednesday what he believed on Monday, and it doesn't matter what happened on Tuesday. That joke was stolen from Stephen Colbert. I may owe him a quarter or something. 
and transmission. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.